0: With me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. So, Matthew chapter 1, welcome. We are in the middle of our Christmas sermon series that we are calling A Thrill of Hope, where we are declaring each week that what our weary world needs the most in this season and every season is a thrill of hope. And we have that hope in the person of Jesus Christ, and we are called to live in that hope. And let me just set up this morning where we're going today this way with this question. How many of you are really into your personal genealogy? So just a, a few of us in here. How many of you, honestly, are interested in other people's genealogy? Okay, so a, a few more um, maybe added there. You know, most of us in this room, as you've just shown, you're not interested in genealogies. You're definitely not interested in other people's genealogies. And you know, truth be told, I'm not really that much interested in my own Just just to be honest, some people are. They go to websites. They pay the fees and all of those things. About four years ago, I get an email from one of my father's first cousins, and he said, Hey, I'm trying to um, just go through our our family heritage, family tree, and if I sign you up for Ancestry.com and they send you the stuff, will you participate and do all that? And I was like, well, yes, sure, I'll, I'll do it. And so I did it, never thought anything more about it. Until this week, going through Matthew 1, and I was like, oh, a few years ago I did that. I set up an account, so of course I went to the um, account for the first time ever, and of course I learned, I started, you know, it showed me very clearly. It said, You are 41% of, from England and Northwestern European, um, 29% Scottish, so it made me feel like William Wallace, like for a moment, so I was feeling pretty good, um, 19% Irish, 7% Wells. in Norway, so all of those things, but anyway, there was another button I clicked that says DNA matches So I clicked it and all of a sudden all these people come up and there's messages from them saying Hey, this site shows that um, you're a DNA match Would love to catch up and just hear your story and see how we are connected And let me just be honest I feel like I have enough relatives already Like, I am not looking to add anyone else into my life. i like, this is dysfunctional enough. I'm not trying to bring other dysfunction from the outside in. Some of you feel the same way. Others of you are like, no, you should always let people in, and I will gladly send you their emails, and you can gladly let them in. But let me just say, Strickland's, you might want to be careful. So all of that to say, you know... Went through this journey um, this week, and I was like, okay, well, this is kind of interesting, and I probably won't look again for another four years, and um, there we go. But this morning, in week three of our series, we finally come to the New Testament and to the good news of Jesus Christ. And although there is only one gospel, one ultimate picture, one story of Jesus from beginning to end, there are four books that help us understand who Christ is. Is why he came. And there is beauty in having four inspired writings of good news. And I thought about it this way this week. I was uh, watching just very quickly, briefly, an older black and white Christmas movie. And of course, in those days, you had a lot cleaner content. Um, We would all agree. But oftentimes, in those older black and white movies, they did not make much use of camera angles. In fact, there was normally two. And they would just, one camera angle, about 30 45 seconds and eventually there'd be another camera angle while this camera has to move and there wasn't a lot going on and now just compare that to the very rapid technological changes that we have today of camera angles galore i mean you can go to the theater you can watch top gun and you can like feel sick and like oh this is just too, i mean camera angles everywhere so when you look at the four gospels what you are seeing is almost as if the holy spirit is the producer of the film of jesus's life and he is giving us four different camera angles showing us clearly the picture of jesus who he is why why he came and when you think about the gospels they all have different emphasis for instance matthew is emphasizing jesus as the sovereign king Mark portrays Jesus as the servant of God who does the will of God. Luke shows Jesus to be the son of man who relates to us. And then John shows Jesus to be the very son of God. Now all four Gospels also have different audiences they're writing to. So Matthew is writing to the Jews, showing the Jews that Jesus was the one who fulfilled all the Jewish prophecy. The Gospel of Mark is written to the Romans to show that Jesus was the perfect servant the gospel of luke was written to the greeks and the greeks they put a lot of emphasis on the perfect man so luke is showing them that jesus is the perfect son of man and then of course john was written really for the whole world for god so loved the the world now besides those differences let me say this i've always wanted to say this like the the infomercials but wait there's more so matthew emphasizes what jesus said Mark emphasizes what Jesus did, Um, Luke emphasizes how Jesus felt, but of course John emphasizes who Jesus was, the the Son of God, yet there's still more. For of the four Gospels, only two of the Gospels give us genealogies, and it has to do with the point of the Gospel. So in Matthew we have the genealogy because a king has to have one. In the Gospel of Luke we have a genealogy because a perfect man has to have one now in mark we don't have a genealogy because a servant doesn't need one and then in the gospel of john we don't have a genealogy because almighty god doesn't have one so just think about that picture and of course the second i say genealogy so this morning we come to the gospel of matthew matthew begins unlike all the other gospel writers Luke says, I'm going to give an order, detail, account. Mark says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And yet Matthew says, here's a genealogy for you. And the second I say that, some of you immediately, like, you are tuning out. Others of you are going, I picked the wrong Sunday to come back to church. And you're thinking that um, in your, your mind. But let me just ask this question. How many of you would be honest enough to say that when you are doing your Bible reading and you come to genealogy, either your mind wanders or you skip it altogether? And you call yourself Christians. I am ashamed of you. I mean, the, the least you could do is take down names and give it to people who you know who are pregnant and say, have you considered, have you considered this name? and just see what happens. With it. But today we're going to jump into this genealogy. And of course, we are about to read it. And it's a bunch of names. And I tell you, as I'm reading this, I'm pretty sure that Christmas spirit is not going to fill your hearts. But I pray as we unpack it that something amazing of God's grace is going to take place in this room together. So if you can stand with me. And just another side note when you come to a list of names and you don't know what they say, the trick is this act confident in reading them, and no one else will know. The difference. Amen. So here we are, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. So I got those two right. Verse 2 Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah and Abijah, the father of Asaph and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram and Joram, the father of Uzziah and Uzziah, the father of Jotham and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon." After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheotel, and Sheotel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuad, and Abuad the father of Elachim, and Elachim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this scripture that doesn't feel very Christmassy, Lord, just remind us today of the beauty of it. There is a point to this and I pray today, God, that we would not miss this point and that we would not miss your grace in it all. Speak, O God, by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So the first 17 verses of Matthew 1 are basically the forgotten verses of the Christmas story. In fact, this family tree has often been called the first Christmas tree. It is a, a Christmas tree that we see, yet the question remains, why in the world would Matthew begin with a genealogy. Why begin this way? And let me just assure you, Matthew is not trying to win an award for the most boring intro of all Bible um, books. He's not doing that. He's bringing a very specific purpose here because here's the deal. In that day, if you were to say Jesus is king, every Jew would have said, show me his lawn. Show, show me the genealogy. Show me where he came from because we know where the king is supposed to come from. And if he didn't come from there, he's not our king. And think of it this way, the Old Testament begins with the book of the generations, the book of Genesis, at the beginning of the world. But the glory of the New Testament is that it begins in Matthew 1 with the book of the generation of the one who made the world. So Genesis, the beginning of the world. Matthew 1, the beginning of the one who made the world. So Matthew's genealogy takes us through Israel's history of covenants, slavery, Wilderness wandering, judges, kings, exiles, God's people are experiencing his faithfulness and his presence all along the way they're seeing the fulfillment of his promises to them despite their own sin despite their own setbacks despite suffering that they are enduring and these names that we just read aren't just a list of names they represent an anthology of stories meaning when a Jewish person would have read these names their mind would have immediately gone back to memory outpouring of memories of the history of these individuals and what they brought to the table. And this genealogy focuses on three major stages, and we're going to do a little diving in here, and then we're going to get to the application part. But three stages. from The first stage is from the patriarchy of Abraham to the monarchy of, of David. It was a period of greatness, period of faithfulness. Then you have the stage two is the picture from the monarchy all the way to the captivity of Israel, and it was a period of decline. In all, we have 42 kings over Israel and Judah and one queen and among those 42 kings only 10 of them are described as good and a few of those 10 didn't they weren't good all through they didn't finish good they they finished by rebelling against God then the third phase is from the captivity of Israel all the way to Jesus coming and that is a period shrouded with with darkness so at the end of this section in verse 17 Matthew tells us that he has or his list has included three sets of 14 generations. Just to go a little deep here, 14, of course, is two sevenths. The number seven is the, in the Bible is a number of completion. It's a number of per- perfection. Now, what we know through this list is Matthew left a few names out. So, um, if he would have done it the way it normally was, it wouldn't be three sets of 14, but he left names out. And the reason he did this, get this, is because he wanted the people who heard this to be able to easily memorize it. Imagine if we put this in our Bible memory verse uh, for the beginning of January all through March, and we're just going to memorize the genealogy of Jesus. He had no excitement there whatsoever. But Matthew did that for that very specific purpose. Yet, yet, don't miss this. Matthew presents it this way to show that God has superimposed his perfection, basically double perfection, um, 14 in an amazing way, into world history, showing us that Jesus is the center of all of history. Meaning, history is really his story. It is His story come to us. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give us three truths that give us assurance of hope in this season and every season. And the first one, we're going to dig a little deep, so just follow with me here, and then we're going to get into the application part. And you do not want to miss that because of what it means for our lives. But the first picture is this, the sovereign genealogy of the king. The sovereign genealogy of the king. So in this genealogy is everything we need to know about Christianity. And this genealogy is important for no other reason than because it proves to us that God works providentially over something that we have no control over, meaning the people who we are born to and the people that we give birth to. God shows through genealogies that whoever he promises will be born is in fact born by whoever he says they'll be born from. And this is a picture of only God has control of that. And you look at verse 1, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And then verse 16 says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So Matthew first introduces, not in order as they appear, but he introduces David first and then Abraham. So what we see here is, first of all, Jesus is the son of David. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, God came to David and promised David that through David, there would be a continual seed that would reign upon the throne. There would be a king who would reign forever of the seed of David. Here's the problem. David lives. He dies. His son becomes king. He lives. He dies. Every other king who sat on the throne of Israel and Judah, they lived and they died. No king living forever, reigning forever. So the people in the Old Testament, they're holding to this promise. In fact, in Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah the prophet is writing at a time when Israel, the northern kingdom, had been taken off into Assyrian captivity. And Babylon is coming into Judah. They're about to take them away. And in the midst of all of that happening, that darkness, Jeremiah says, the Lord has told me there will be a king who will reign on the throne of David, and he will reign forever. Therefore, Matthew is not just giving us a list of names. Matthew is shouting, the son of David has come, and he will be king forever. He will be king forever. He will sit on the throne of David, and no one will ever take his kingdom. Then secondly, Jesus is the son of Abraham. So in Genesis 12, God comes to Abram when he was 75 years old and had zero children, and God says, Abram, I know you're 75, and I know your wife is 65, but from you is going to come a great, awesome nation. You won't even be able to count the number of people that come from you, and I'm going to give you property. I'm going to give you a land that will be yours. Now, God comes again in Genesis 15, gives the same promise. Again in Genesis 17, gives the same promise. The problem is, Abraham's getting older, no kids. He's 99, no kids. Sarah hears, she laughs, because how can this possibly be? In the middle of Genesis 17, God declared to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will bless you and make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. The whole promise to Abraham is you're going to be a great nation, and that nation will be a blessing to all nations. Here's the problem. Israel wasn't a blessing to themselves, nor were they a blessing to any other nation around them. So what God had to do is God had to take from Israel and do what they could not do. Send one who would be a blessing not just to that nation, but to all nations. And that is what God did in and through Christ. Then lastly we see, and just follow with me here, Matthew points in verse 16 to Jesus as the Son of God. Mary. Now follow with me here. Jesus was born not of the seed of Joseph. He was born of basically conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. The Bible never calls Jesus the father of Joseph. Now Joseph adopted Jesus and Joseph, Jesus was Joseph's legally, had all legal rights, but lineally, Jesus came from Mary. So follow with me here. We don't have time to fully unpack this, but if Jesus had been the real son of Joseph, he could have never sat on the throne of David. What I mean by that is this Satan was very much aware of the promises that God gave to David. So, David wanted, or Satan wanted nothing more than to come and to basically take this chain and break it. So, what happened is the 19th king of Judah, his name was Jeconiah. It seemed as if Satan had won because he was so evil that we are told in Jeremiah 22 that God cursed Jeconiah and basically said that no no one of his seed would ever sit on the throne of David ever again. It seems in this moment as if Satan had won. How can God be faithful to his promise if from the line of David there are no more sons? Well, here's the deal. Well, it shocked the devil. It had to shock the devil when he learned that God was not limited to just one son of David. David had another son named Nathan, and from that son, and and his line came Mary, the mother of Jesus. And what we what we see here is this: this list of names doesn't just show us that Jesus is a part of history; it shows us that Jesus is the center of all of history. And let me say this this morning: and I want you to hear this. You. As awesome as you are, you are not the center of history. You are not this generation. Next generation is not the center of history. Let me go a step further. America is not the center of history. Jesus is the center of history. Everything, all of history points to him and all of history flows from And we see the sovereign genealogy of the king. But then secondly, and I'm going to have to explain this one, we see the sinful glitches of the king. And what I mean by that is this. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus had no sin. There was no sin ever in him. He was the sinless one. But he came for sinful ones. Saving sinful ones like us. Meaning the glitches of Jesus weren't in him, they're in us. If you want to look at a glitch, brothers and sisters, look in the mirror. We are the glitch um, in the kingdom. And think about it this way. Herod, When Herod um, was the king, when Jesus was born, and Herod published his own genealogy, and what he did was he specifically made sure that there would be no rotten individuals and no anyone with a shady past would be in his genealogy. So ba- he basically whitewashed his genealogy to make sure no one of any kind of um, history, any kind of bad past would be in his genealogy. Well, Matthew doesn't do that. This entire genealogy includes men and women, prostitutes, adulterers, liars, murderers, Jews, and Gentiles. It's almost as if someone ransacked the Old Testament. Instead of producing a hall of fame, they introduced a hall of shame. And this is who Jesus came from. And then look look here in verses 2 through 3. Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Think verses 5 and 6. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. If you study these names in detail, it's almost as if God put together a list of outcasts, reject rejects and those who had fallen into immorality and said i want to, I want my son to come from them I want my son to come from them we don't know about every single person on this list but of the ones we do know nearly all of them have some sort some sort of moral failure in their spiritual resume for instance think about this abraham father abraham on two different occasions came in front of a foreign king and lied about about his wife, Sarah, because he was trusting in himself and not in the Lord. His son Isaac did the same exact thing. Isaac's son Jacob was a schemer and a deceiver. Judah was a fornicator. David was an adulterer and a murderer. His son Solomon was a polygamist and an idolater. Manasseh was the most evil king Israel had ever had. And on and on and on we could go. This is not a list of pious saints. Far from it. Some on this list aren't even saints at all. You have a murderer is on the list, a fornicator on the list, an adulterer, a liar, a deceiver, an idolater on this list. And then when you leave verse 3, you start noticing something very strange about this genealogical record, meaning women are in it. And I don't want to shock you here, but in those days, women were not considered worthy enough to even be mentioned or placed in genealogical records. A a stout Jew every morning would wake up and would pray this prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. That would be the prayer they would pray. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he basically takes what they had believed that was upside down, and he turned it right side up, and he gave women the worth that he had given them from the beginning. But don't miss it. Again, don't miss the, the women that he uses. First, you have Tamar in verse 3. In Genesis 38, Tamar pretended to be a prostitute so that she could sleep with her father-in-law so that she could get pregnant. Think about that for a second. Then we get to Rahab in verse 5. And Rahab, all throughout Scripture, anytime she's mentioned, she is known as what? Prostitute. Every time she's mentioned, the harlot, Rahab. Prostitute, Rahab. Then third on the list is Ruth. In verse five, and of course, Ruth was not guilty of harlotry, but she was an outcast because of her lineage. So she was a Moabite. And if you don't know about the Moabites, the Moabites—they were a line that came from an incestual relationship between Lot and his first daughter. So, think about that. In Deuteronomy twenty twenty-three, the whole Moabite nation is cursed. So God chooses and picks a cursed lady to be in the line. And then last but not least, we have Bathsheba, who in verse 6 isn't even called Bathsheba. She's just called David's wife, but she's an adulteress. Now, scholars can't decide if Matthew doesn't use her name because the story was so scandalous or if Matthew was just trying to stick it to David because David had sinned so much against God and tried to cover it up. And then go further. All of these women are non-Jews. You have Tamar and Rahab who were Canaanites. You have Ruth who was a Moabite. And maybe, just maybe, Bathsheba was a a Jew, but she was married to Uriah the Hittite, making herself an outcast in that way. So adultery, sexual morality, prostitution, incest are all in Jesus' line, and he actually let it go public. If that was in your line, would you let it go public? Would you stand in front of people and read that list? These were skeletons in the closet that we might think should have stayed there. Just leave them there, yet Matthew makes no effort to spruce this tree up. He's not hiding the rotten spots, and he is not hiding the twisted twigs. Again, in that day, only the good guys made it in the list. But here Matthew is just bringing it all out. I read a story this week about a very prominent family who commissioned a professional biographer to record their family tree. And they gave this biographer very careful instructions and cautioned him to deal carefully with a certain Uncle George, who in a drunken stupor had committed murder and was subsequently sent to the electric chair. So the biographer assured them that he would handle it with care. And here's what he wrote. Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock to us all. (laughs) See, the beauty of this is Matthew doesn't try to cover up at all, and God doesn't try to cover up at all from those in the line of Jesus. Here's the deal. Write this down. Jesus came of sinners because he came for sinners. He came for sinners. Every name on this family tree allows us to see that they were all flawed individuals, even even lives that were filled with, with trauma. But God was at work bringing redemption through them and bringing redemption to them. And what it tells me is this. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. There is room for every story. There is room for your story in his family. There is room for your life in his family. Every one of these smaller stories, however good or bad, are all woven together and eventually give way to Christ coming into this world. And let me just be real for a second. I think most of us in this room would be honest enough to say every single one of us have dysfunction in our family somewhere. We have dysfunction in our family somewhere. Some of us are looking at our dysfunction right now. She's looking back at me. This just got weird. But we all have dysfunction. And please hear this. I'm not saying that God is pleased with all the pain that has come into our lives through that dysfunction. But what we must see is this. God has one overriding purpose for our lives. Meaning, hear this, our God is greater than our dysfunction. He is greater than our dysfunction. Whatever dysfunction in your life, your God, my God, is greater. The sinless life and sacrifice of Jesus are still more than enough to cover the glitches of our sin. And oh, we praise God for that. Which leads us to the third truth, which is this, the saving grace of the king. The saving grace of the the king. So the question becomes... Why are these names included in the line that leads to Jesus? And here's the answer. Their names are included for the same exact reason that our names are included in the line that leads from Jesus. And the answer is this, only because of the grace of God. Their names are in Matthew 1 because of the grace of God, and our names are in the Lamb's book of life only because of the grace of God. Just think about Matthew, who is writing who is writing this gospel. He had he lived his life ripping off his fellow Jew. He was employed as a tax collector. Yet when he meets Jesus, I read this week that not only did he throw down um, his tax books, he picked up a pen and paper. But even more than that, we're told in the gospels that the first thing he did in coming to Christ was he threw a party. And he didn't invite all the the higher class individuals, he invited all the sinners to come to sit at the feet of Jesus and say, this is the one that changed my life and he could change yours as well. I mean, this is a beautiful picture of what is happening in this moment. Think about in 1 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. You see on the screen, Paul says, for consider your calling. Not many of you were wise Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But then he says this, God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You want a reality check this morning? If you are God's, the reason you are his is because you were foolish you were weak, you were low, despised. You're not his because you pulled up your your work boots and you got to work and you earned your way in. No, you are his because of his work for you when you were foolish and weak and low and despised. And that is the story of us all. Brothers and sisters, even the best individuals in this list were so flawed that it is sometimes... It's hard for us to see how in the world they even have good points and how in the world they even got in. But this shows us the grace of God because people like this make up Jesus' family tree. Again, Jesus, the sinless one, came of sinners because he came for sinners. Now, here's what I'm about to do. I'm about to read an excerpt from a book called The Grace and Truth Paradox by Randy Alcorn. And when I read this, some of you, this is going to hit in a way that you're not gonna like this, it's not gonna taste well whatsoever, and I'm if that's the case, I'm glad. And I'm gonna explain it, and we're gonna walk through it together. But in this book, Randy Alcorn writes these words. Wesley Allen Dodd tortured and mur- murdered three boys in Vancouver, Washington. Dodd was scheduled to be hanged, the first U.S. hanging in three decades shortly after midnight on January 4th, 1993. At dinner that evening, Both of our daughters, then 11 and 13, prayed earnestly that God would repent and place his faith in Jesus Christ before he died. I agreed with their prayer, but only because I knew I was supposed to. Yet God's last words that night were these, I had thought there was no hope and no peace. I was wrong. I have found hope and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says this, gasp and moans erupted from the gallery. The anger was palpable. Many began to say things such as this, how dare you think after what you have done that you can have peace and hope in Jesus. Another said, do you really think God would let you into heaven after what you've done? Another said, shut up and go to hell, you child killer. You won't get off so easy. Then Alcorn said this, the idea of God's offering grace to Dodd was utterly offensive. And yet, didn't Jesus die for Dodd's sins just as he died for ours? No sin is bigger than our Savior. Grace is literally not of this world. I struggle with the idea of God saving Dodd only because I thought too high of myself and too little of my Savior. I'd imagine the distance between God and me as a difference between the South Pole and the North Pole. But when you consider God's viewpoint from light years away, that distance is negligible. In my standing before a holy God apart from Christ, I am God, I am Dahmer. I am Mao. If God isn't big enough to save Dodd and Dahmer, he's not big enough to save me. The cost of redemption cannot be overstated. The wonders of grace cannot be overemphasized. Christ took the hell he didn't deserve so that we could take the heaven we don't deserve. And brothers and sisters, if you find yourself in this room right now going, don't you ever compare me with someone who would kill and torture little boys. Let me just say this very clearly. You might not have sinned in that extent, but your little small sins in your mind are enough to still send you to hell. They're enough. They're enough to still send you to hell, and there's nothing on your own that you can do about it. But praise be to God, Jesus came to do something about it, and here's the beauty of it. We are invited into his line. We are invited into his family. This list of names that leads to Jesus shows us that there is a list of names that leads from Jesus, and you and I can be on that list. We can be on that list. There is room for you. This list reminds us of the grace of our God toward all people. And if you're going to write anything down today, write this down. God let the skeletons out so that he could let sinners like us in. He let skeletons out so that he could let sinners like us in. And here's the deal. There might be some in this room and maybe listening online today every time you think of salvation every single time you begin to compare yourself with somebody else like a dodd and you go i'm a lot better than them so therefore because of my good works surely surely god's gonna let me go to heaven but here's the deal god will not judge you based on dodd or jeffrey dahmer god will judge you based on jesus christ and when we compare ourselves with the perfect, sinless Son of God, we will come up short every single time, and we, we will find ourselves in need of a Savior. And Jesus is the only Savior of sinners in the world. He was then, he is now, and he will be forever. Brothers and sisters, if you have not called upon his name for salvation, may today be the day of salvation. Because here's the deal. The beauty is as we look back to what Jesus did for us, and as we see ourselves now in his family line, there is assurance of hope for us, not just now, but forever. We have assurance of hope in Jesus forever. He let the skeletons out of his closet so that he could let you and me in. And we are in his family. And brothers and sisters, if you are in his family, he will be your Savior forever. He'll be your Savior forever. And what a Savior we have. And what hope we have in him. I'm going to go ahead and ask, praise team to come forward. I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to enter this time of invitation and consecration. And brothers and sisters, I pray that you will have this day seen the grace of our God grace of our god and what he has done opening a door for us so let's pray in this moment father we thank you for this message god is little as it seems to have application lord yet oh god when we see name after name and see sin after sin and yet because of your grace their faith lord they're in the same way god because of your grace the gift of faith lord we can also be in that line that leads from Jesus. Lord, I thank you for those in this room that are saved, that have come to Jesus as Savior and Lord. I thank you, God, for the grace that you have bestowed upon us, and Lord, help us to continually understand that we were saved by grace, we live by grace, we work by grace, we walk (laughs) by your grace that you have given to us, and we will die in that grace. and We will live in that grace forever. But for any who are here or watching online, who today in this moment, maybe there's been some things going on in their hearts and lives where they're realizing that, really, they're trusting in themselves for salvation. They're trusting in good works. They're trusting in comparing themselves with other people other than Jesus. Today, you have brought them to a place where they've seen their sinfulness and they've seen their need for a Savior. Lord, may this moment be the moment that they cry out and ask Jesus to save them from their sin. They would ask him to be the Lord and Savior of their life. May this be a moment of salvation. We thank you for the assurance of hope that we have. In Jesus' name,